When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Discount Tire, we know your time is valuable. Get 30% shorter average wait time when you buy and book online. Did you know Discount Tire now sells wiper blades? Check out our current deals at DiscountTire.com or stop in and talk to an associate today. Discount Tire. Let's get you taken care of. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Welcome to episode 140 of the Love That Album podcast. My name is Morris Bristinski. So glad you could join us. And if you've been listening to this show long enough, you know that I love welcoming new people to the Love That Album family. I love getting people to come on for the first time. So this is a man who I've been listening to for years, but we only just recently discovered that we loved some of the same music. And I said, well, would you like to come on? And he said, fuck yeah. I think he just did it like that. So I'd like you to give a warm welcome, a round of applause to the man who knows more about Diane Cannon and Sandra Bullock than nearly anyone I know. His life <laughs> has revolved around orange wedges and coffee tables for a number of years. And there's a rumor going around that he may have lost three episodes of Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast, but he denies that vociferously. I think I may have to actually create a backstory and, and just own up to it. I mean, the fact is I wasn't there, but it's become such a great... <laughs> thing i think I, I think i have to own it and then make it more interesting somehow irrelevant sir i welcome to the podcast mr frank verderosa welcome to the show frank hello it's so great to be on a show where somebody's last name is more complicated than my own it's really nice i don't think so i think bishtinsky is the smith of poland that's interesting yeah i think verderosa is the verderosa of verderosa so i just say v now because i'm so tired of spelling it anyway enough about my name and enough about <laughs> your surname let's just talk about music welcome to the show frank great to be here now, you're here ostensibly to talk about the album that sits right on the cusp of what Genesis did and what Genesis were about to do, their 1980 album, Duke. And before we get into talking about how we discovered that we both love this album, let's talk about you for a few minutes. Now, people who listen to this show who happen to be fans of Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast, and it's true, yes, you have not been with the show for a year, more's the pity, but... 
give us a little bit of a background about what you've been doing since, because I know that you had plans you were going to be releasing Unsung. So what's been the Frankfurter Racer story for the last 12 months? Well, eight of those months, almost going on nine, has been mostly sitting in my basement studio working all day and all night. But yeah, Unsung is still planned. I, it should have come out a year ago. Actually, between you and me, there was some kind of a podcast competition thing, and I just figured, let me throw my hat in the ring. So if you go to iTunes, Unsung is up. It's live. You're hearing it here first. But all that's there is a really shitty, sped up, two-minute teaser to try to come across to the first episode, the first guest I recorded, to kind of put it out there. Uh, mostly me talking about what the show is. That's all I've had time to get out the door. And I've been banking episodes. And so my plan is to release 10 or 12 episodes as a season weekly and then take some time off and get the next batch because I'm a full-time mixer. I've been working on TV commercials, radio commercials. I do casting. I've been mixing short films. I've been engineering several other podcasts that also aren't out yet. They're still in production. Actually, one of them is already running. It's called Let's Play. If you're into gaming, look for the let's play podcast all kinds of superstars from that world i've been mixing that so i've been very busy but it's all at the expense of my own time to do my own show and since lockdown started here in new york i realized very quickly that for us to be able to engage actors stuck at home they need to be set up so i've been doing webinars and classes night after night for months many months at this point and individual coaching to get people up to snuff to have the right microphone to treat their space acoustically to sound broadcast ready from home so that we can all work together so i'm doing sessions now from home all day where i'll give you an example of this morning i'm doing a new cartoon series the actor was in his home studio in new york the producer is in argentina the writer of the episode is in mexico city the director is in california and i'm at my home in new jersey so they're all on skype the actor is on source connect and we're getting the job done they're able to see the video over zoom as i screen share i'm recording takes over source connect which is a really great broadcast technology that goes computer to computer and we've all found ways to get the jobs done i've been doing shows for disney nickelodeon cartoon network discovery kids plus commercials you name it i've been busy that's absolutely fantastic i mean just sort of thinking about how technology has enabled this to happen whatever else we can say about 2020 or anything from the last 10 years the fact that you can do this it would have been impossible even a decade ago i imagine or considerably more difficult at any rate i don't know how they got their tv commercials done in 1918 in that pandemic that must have been impossible <laughs> to make them at that point but you know the other thing i will say about the lockdown too and and doing all these webinars they invariably start out as a webinar and end up with three or four of us drinking till two in the morning and talking on zoom and i've met so many more people you included right i'm talking to you in australia i didn't think i really knew you before lockdown but then mm -hmm. since we were all on social media so much more but the relationships I formed with some of these actors and some of these people that I've gotten to know really well that I've never met in real life at this point, it's fascinating. And I can't wait till this is all done and we're all cured and we can get out in the world. And, and we'd never have to speak to each other again. Then I could just go back to watching TV and eating chips. <laughs> but no, it's... Uh, 
you know, it's been, that's a, the, really the upshot. And I've said it to many people, like, you know, this pandemic led me to this new friendship with you. And that to me is invaluable. Like if there's any positive to come out of this, it's just the straight socializing with people globally that I not would have not had the chance to otherwise. There's been a bunch of ventures, which I've seen out there that have basically the flowers that have grown up out of the dirt here. So I know that there's been choirs that have been recording, people recording their individual parts and then yeah. an engineer somewhere piecing them all together. And it sounds absolutely magnificent. Well, there was a composer that did that a, a good 15 years ago, and I can't remember his name. We should know this. Brilliant. Like He gave everybody a conducted track to watch, and they all recorded their part and submitted it. And the same thing, he edited it together, and everybody sees little pixels in the distance that come and go and zoom in, and it sounds beautiful. But this year, I think it's become a rather common thing. Yeah, now everyone's doing it. Yeah, yeah. Which, which I think is Great. So there you go. Yay for the pandemic. Hooray. Yeah. You're here to talk with me about the album Duke, Genesis's 10th album. So what we're going to do before we get to that is we're going to take a quick break. Joanne will give you the contact details and then we'll get the show on the road. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 140 with Morris over here and Frank over there. I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music related discussion. And we're back, Morris over here in Melbourne, Frank over there in New Jersey, or should I say New Jersey? Jersey. Jersey. Hey. How you? How you doing? How you doing over there? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've always wanted to do that. My terrible James Gandolfini impression on a podcast. Never mind. Um, <laughs> welcome back to Love That Album, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. My huge gratitude to them for allowing me to play in their sandbox. And we're here to talk about the album Duke from Genesis. And if you've been listening to this show long enough, you know that we never get straight into it. There's a whole lot of peripherals. I'm thinking of changing the name of this podcast to the Peripheral Music Show, because we speak about a whole lot of shit surrounding the album before we actually get to the main topic. But hopefully it's all interesting. Frank, I guess what would be a fair question. Normally, I might have asked you, when do you become a Genesis fan? But I'm going to ask you a different question, which may well lead to this anyway, is when did you become a fan of prog rock? Before we get to the debate about whether this album is prog rock at all. Right, right. Yeah, Because when people talk about prog bands that I'm not super familiar with, I listen to it and go... That's not what I think of Prague as. So I think I'm probably more of an art rock fan first, right? 
So I think my earliest listening, all right, I'm going to tell you a little fun backstory here. My brother, Tony, my older brother, Tony Verderoso, who's an incredible drummer, Google him. There's some amazing YouTube clips you can watch of him doing what he does with electronic drums and all the stuff he's done with his career. It's fantastic. So his musical taste influenced mine, except for there was a period of time when he was in high school, his friends felt that his musical taste wasn't very good. So they made a series of tapes. There's a guy named Seth Shapiro, who's out in, uh, now he's in Texas. He was in California. He's very big in entertainment. He made a tape called The Deswillment of Tony Verderosa's Musical Tastes. And on that mixtape was Genesis, Jean-Luc Ponty, mm. Yes, all this great stuff. So I, as an aspiring young drummer, would sneak into my brother's room and bang on the drums with the headphones on, listening and jamming along with all the stuff that was on those tapes. And that sort of got me into it. Then when I was in eighth grade, my brother got me a ticket to see Genesis at Nassau Coliseum on Long Island. It was in support of the, the Abacab tour, which I was already sort of appreciating. But this was my first big concert as a kid, going with my big brother. Little did I know then, like that was the night that was going to change my life, right? That was it. Between the very lights and the songs and the music, I was hooked. I've been a fan ever since, like religiously. It's the warm blanket that comforts me when I need to hear something and chill out. It's still the old Genesis albums. Little did I know that night they were recording it, which is now the bulk of Three Sides Live and the Genesis in America video, concert video. So I've got my first concert archived. I can revisit it. And it's still, it puts me right back there whenever I hear it. The opening chords of Behind the Lions kick in. That's my morning coffee. always put me in a good mood. So that was it. I was sold. And then it just went on from there. I haven't been able to use that connection to Phil, Tony and Mike to say, hey, come on my podcast. I'm on one of your albums. <laughs> there was talk for a minute on Gilbert's show of getting Phil Collins as a guest because Gilbert had done some uh, concert opener video with it was him and Vanessa Williams did something for Phil Collins a long, long time ago. And there was talk of getting him on and it didn't happen because I guess he was around and that got me really excited. Now that I'm not involved, he'll, he'll probably come on. Um, the closest <laughs> I've come to meeting anybody is I was doing a session one day with this guy from South Africa, good actor whose name is escaping at the moment. And we were chatting and he noticed all my Genesis box set DVDs sitting on the shelf at the studio. He said, oh, you a Genesis fan? He goes, we're actually good friends with Mike Rutherford. My wife and his wife are close and we hang out all the time. And I'm like, you're, and I was like, I am such a Genesis freak. And God, I'd hope to meet them one day. He's like, well, maybe when I get back, maybe I'll have him record a little something for you. And uh, it never happened. <laughs> Never happened. You can still write him that letter and say, hey, remember that time 15 years ago? I worked with a guy that knows a guy that's friends with your wife. Can you just, you know, say hello? <laughs> I, I had always hoped that in some capacity I would meet them and, and do something. It's just never going to happen. I'd say all you need is a miracle, but we won't, we won't <laughs> uh, now you're just throwing it all away. Ah, oh, boom. I see what you did there. All right. So my intro to prog, and maybe this is more art rock as you describe, and I'm not really sure how I'd make the distinction, but back in 1975, 76, just as I was starting to listen to rock music, because I've been a classical music head up until I was 10. Rick Wakeman was touring Australia. He played in Melbourne at the My Music Bowl, Journey to the Centre of the Earth. And back at that time, that was a big deal. So they televised that and being a fan of the book, 
I decided to watch this with my sister and see what this is all about. Yeah. And I was just hooked. This guy with the long hair and multiple keyboards and David Hemmings reading notes from the book and the orchestra and, and capes, capes, the capes, capes, the capes, the big shoes. And He's like I, the Elton John of Prague. He was, he was. And ah <laughs> oh, man, but I don't know if you've actually seen anything on his YouTube channel of recent. You want to follow him up. Rick Wakeman is a funny bastard. Oh, when, yeah. When Yes were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they're all giving thanks to God and thanks to their wives. Rick Wakeman is the one who's cracking all the jokes. Uh, I would like to thank, apart from all the guys in Yes that I've worked with, my father, who played a massive part in my, uh, in my musical career. My, my family were all, all in the entertainment business. We genuinely were very, very poor. Um, my father was an Elvis impersonator, uh, and well, there wasn't much call for that in 1947. And he, uh... So back in the day, I followed up with a few of his albums. So there was uh, an album called White Rock, which is about the Winter Olympics, not a racist diatribe. Uh, there was... <laughs> Um, an album called Rick Wakeman's Criminal Record, where every tune was something to do with crime. And uh, of course, his biggest album, which was probably his debut solo album outside of Yes, was Six Wives of Henry VIII. Yeah. And I just fell in love with him. All the rock music that I knew was everything was in 4-4 four, four time. And yeah, that was great. But all of a sudden, I was listening to a guy who was doing these changing time signatures and multiple melodies going on in the one piece, which was a very classical sort of thing to do. And being, you know, growing up listening to classical music i just really fell in love with that so yeah. i thought well where do i go to next and i got myself hold a copy of yes songs i think second because it was the only way that i could afford it and then the next thing was in the court of the crimson king somewhere along the line or rather i think i might have had an anthology which my favorite tracks were from in the court of the crimson king duke was my introduction to genesis so you know hence you know appropriate i think i might have discovered that album just a bit before face value phil collins decided that he was right. going to do his solo on thing. And we'll get to it eventually. There, there was a connection between Duke and <laughs> face value thematically as to how he- Somewhat, Someone would say an unfortunate <laughs> well, Yes. Well, there, there is, yes. <laughs> There's a local record shop that sadly no longer with us called Allen's that was in the center of town here in Melbourne. And every six months they'd be doing like a big fire sale and they'd put records and things, which I, I think maybe factory stock they couldn't sell anymore with the hole punched into them. And I found a copy of the cassette of Duke. I think I bought it not because I knew anything about Genesis at the time, but just because I liked the artwork on the front cover. And I thought for $3, why not? Why so not? I came home and played the shit out of this tape played it over and over and over again. And we'll get more into the actual music, but I was hypnotized by that. And then yeah. I went and found, I went back one album. I went back to, and then there were three. And then I went and bought The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. And then, you know, over the years, I sort of found myself, I didn't get everything, but I found myself getting more and more into the oldest stuff. But of course, the first album that came out after Duke was Abacab, which was about the time that I was starting to take an interest into them. And this was nothing like what I expected from them. I yeah. thought, hang on, this is really, really different. So I guess my question to you is, 
where do you stand? I mean, I guess I can guess where you stand, I guess, because you've already mentioned that the first tour was the Abacab tour. Yeah, but I think we have similar trajectories. I think it's like, that's what got me into it. And I think if I really think back, I remember listening to Yes on cassette, uh, maybe some Jethro Tull, you know, the, the classic stealing the older brothers records to hear all this stuff. And the Who, not exactly Prague, but that was all stuff I would grab. Look, I mean, I'd argue that a quick one while he's away and the underture on Tommy, uh, at least proto-prog, if you will. True. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, look, it's great stuff. But I did the same thing. I kind of was like into Duke and Abacab. Because at the time, Abacab was on the radio. So I would run to the radio whenever it was on, right? That's the world we were in. Or if it came on MTV, I'd be like, ah, you know, it's that band. But then friends in high school, older friends, would be like, well, you know, they've been around a long time. Go get this. So I get my allowance every week for my chores. And I would take my allowance and ride my bike right to the record store and flip through the cassettes because I didn't have anything but a cassette player. I just kept going back. I remember buying like Trespass on cassette and listening to that going, oh, well, this is weird, but it would grow on me. And then, you know, supper's ready. And then I think I wore right through seconds out. remember I started buying the vinyl when I got a turntable and then I got the lamb for Christmas as a gift one year and just immediately, you know, back in the days of getting up at five in the morning as a kid to see what Santa bought. I grabbed the lamb and went right back to my room with my headphones and started listening to it over and over and over. I still love it. Still love that album. I know that if you go to any of the online music forums, and I think this might surprise you, Frank, but some people on the internet like to argue over trivial points. I don't know if that's news to you or not. But Is that a I've thing? Just, I didn't know that. I've yeah. discovered that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The good news is the internet is just a fad. It's not going to last. It'll be gone before you know it. I'm glad to hear that. Then I can go back to watching television. So the arguing point on a lot of the music forums, and this is why we can't have nice things, because people are always <laughs> slapping each other down over you don't know what you're talking about. Even I said like at the top of the show that this was maybe the crest of that mountain where you look down one side and it's prog and you, you look down the other side and it's pure pop. But it seems to me that there was always something of each on either side of that career. So if you go back, I think maybe like a nursery crime for absent friends or more fool me, I'm selling England by the pound uh, yeah. or even squonk from a trick of the tail. to me great pop songs from a prog band but if you go through the other side of Genesis career Home by the Sea is yeah. to me a progish song that's not to say of course they did go in a more pop way Invisible Touch would never have been written even in the post-Gabriel pre-trio era but it seems like over the years and you can probably attest to this when you went to see them on the tour that ended up being Three Sides Live they were still doing Gabriel era 
music. It would have yeah. been stupid to to not. And I think even like into the 90s, they were still doing I Know What I Like. Here's what I didn't know until much later, having seen that tour, which became Three Sides Live. During that same tour, in fact, two nights after I saw them, they played another venue, a little smaller venue uh, in Queens, New York, mm. and they played Supper's Ready and all the classic stuff. It was like a separate concert where they played. And, and I didn't know enough about them to know that I was missing anything. I think I found a recording of it online somewhere, a really bad recording, but like they played everything, all the gold, all the beautiful Gabriel era stuff, stuff I'd never heard live before. I wish I could get a time machine and go back and catch that. But, you know, thanks to YouTube and thanks to a band, I think you and I may have talked about this, The Musical Box. This band, if I'm getting my facts right, they actually own staging, lighting, the laser wand, and some of the costumes from, they're licensed by Genesis. They're from Montreal. What's the classic, there's the video of where they do Watcher of the Skies and, you know, it's all very old. The, the one you keep seeing restored and remastered on YouTube from like 72. Anyway, they do that in its entirety including the banter on stage and the tuning like it's almost like a scripted show and they've got all the original slides for the screens behind them that genesis had and the lighting and it's the closest you're going to come to going in a time machine to 1972 and seeing gabriel with them in fact i think gabriel was quoted as saying he took his daughter to see them to say this is what i used to do (laughs) Uh, it's so spot on did she speak to him again uh, well, she's touring with him all the time, so oh, really? they're, they're in speaking terms, yeah. She didn't say, oh, Daddy, I can't believe you dressed up as a flower. Yeah, now why, Daddy? That was like, he could have just <laughs> said, well, to amuse your, your young heart. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> what a but I heart. loved all that stuff. Of course, my parents thought I was insane because I'd be cranking the knife on my turntable and my little speakers in my suburban bedroom and like this screaming and pandemonium breaking out in the middle of a song. My parents like, what in God's name are you listening to? I want your opinion on this, though. You as a sound engineer, to my ears, it's not necessarily just always about the sound of those 1980s pop records. I mean, I don't particularly care for some of the songs, but everything up to Duke, and this is a very subjective term, those records sound warm to me. I don't think that Abacab or the one that's self-titled or Invisible Touch or any of that sort of stuff, which I haven't listened to in years, they they sound cold and harsh, which may have been a factor of the 1980s. But as much as the music more appeals to me from 1980 and before, as much to do with, with the engineering, which was, I'm sure was a very deliberate choice. I mean, maybe it's because David Henschel, the producer, once he went off, that was it. Yeah, I think there's so many factors. It's the studios, it's the gear, you know, maybe some of those early board, you know, the mixing consoles they used might have been a, a warmer, richer thing. And then as we got into the 80s, I mixed a lot of albums on the SSL console, Solid State Logic, they're still a big purveyor of audio goods, but I sat behind those big boards. And back then, you know, some other engineers that were Neve enthusiasts would be like, oh, you know, SSL stands for Sure Sounds Lousy. And it meant nothing to me at the time because I I still maintain that you can tweak things enough and get whatever sound you want. Mm -hmm. But I do think the technology changed, the, the, the equipment changed, and then the overall shimmer of a product changed. I'll give you this analogy. If I listen to an MP3 of a Steely Dan song, 
it still sounds richer and warmer than an MP3 at the same bit rate and resolution as something modern produced, but there's more depth, there's panning. You can sit at your speakers and position yourself and see the music in front of you in a way you just don't get as much these days. And I know this is the, the endless argument of digital versus analog. I think it talks to the process. It's the tape that was used, the speed that it was recorded at, the console it was on, the outboard equipment and all its analog glory that it was is used to kind of enhance it all. Uh, the synthesizers themselves, as things got more and more digital and, and things changed, you know, there's, there's still a sound you're not going to get except for from the original. You can emulate it very close, but it's not going to be quite the same. So you lose that depth, you lose that fidelity. And then, of course, the CD era kind of squashed what you were used to hearing on vinyl. And the levels changed. I used an analogy recently. It's like food. In America, junk food is so popular. That's why we're all the way we are. But even if you were to go back to 19, whatever year Doritos came out, if you ate a Dorito then, it would probably taste bland to you now because these companies, they need to keep you engaged to your taste buds get desensitized. So they keep adding salt and flavor and salt and flavor until it doesn't compare to the original over time. And I think that happens with music. It happens in classical, right? A440 is no longer what orchestras tune to. That number goes up. It's a little sharper, a little brighter mm. over time, you know, depending on the piece, I suppose. So I think the same has happened with technology. And you and I spoke about this a little earlier. That's why I kind of, I don't love some of the remastered Genesis stuff because it's so much more compressed and harsh done in the digital age compared to the simplicity of back then. Right. I mean, look, I've, I've been comparing apples with apples, as it were, so it seemed to me that the recording back in the day, so like if I was hearing Abacab, and I, I bought Abacab when that came out, and I, I didn't keep it. It didn't appeal to me terribly much. <laughs> but listening to Abacab and listening to Duke, because that's ostensibly what we're talking about, I found, oh, that sounds a bit harsh. And it's going to be a product of its time. I mean, yes, you, you mentioned the technology. That's going to be a factor into it. This is, I guess, what I was starting to get at before when I was saying, you know, people sort of argue, oh, what's the better era? But it would have been maybe disingenuous for the band that recorded Abacab 10 years after the fact that they recorded Trespass or right. Nursery Crime. They're not doing that in 1981, 82. And to be fair, they couldn't. It would be, well, yeah, more of the same. I mean, maybe there are some people who sort of think, yep, I'd be happy with 30 years of variations on those early 70s albums. But sure. I understand that them as musicians to keep engaged, they thought, right, well, we've lost our singer and flautist and we've lost our, our driving guitarist. So what are the three of us going to do? Yeah. We're going to replace them? No, we're going to do our thing. But if we're going to do our thing, we're going to change it up a little bit. And and yeah. then there were three and Duke were two great albums of them finding their way to that. But that would mean that their sound would have to be changed. So I don't dispute the fact that they wanted to do what they wanted to do, that's great. It doesn't appeal to me, but that doesn't mean I'm saying it's a chunk of shit. They're all time capsules for the band. There's any Genesis album I can listen to. Some I'm going to lean more towards than others. The moment the lamb doesn't appeal to me the way that it did. Although I was just grooving the other night to watching, uh, remember the band Giraffe? Anyone listening to this now, if you don't know Giraffe, Google it, find out. But Kevin Gilbert was their singer. 
and a songwriter. Do you know Kevin Gilbert at all? I don't think I do, no. Hopefully there are some listeners going, oh my God, yes. So Kevin Gilbert was in a band that I first heard him on called Toy Matinee. Talk about brilliant production. Analog, it was him and Bill Bottrell was basically Toy Matinee. And when they tracked it, of course, as a budding engineer, and at that point I had just finished audio school and I was coming to work in New York City as an audio guy. And what I'd read about the production of that album is they would take the mics at the drum set level into these beautiful Neve preamps straight to the tape deck and then to the console. So it's like the purest chain of recording. And it shows that sizzle, that album sizzles like a, the fidelity of a great Steely Dan album and musically so as well. They actually had done at some point the lamb in its entirety staged with Kevin singing it and the band. And it was really incredible. It was at Prague Fest or some big thing years ago. And it, yep. you could find bootleg online. And if you haven't, as a listener and fan of music, get yourself a copy of The Taming of the Shrew by Kevin Gilbert. It is a Lamb Lies Down on Broadway level masterpiece. Macrobiotic, lacto-vegan, non-confrontational, free-range food has got the handshake, peace talk, non-aggression pact, a multicultural, interracial, non-segregated historical They finished it posthumously for him. He, of course, died tragically, but his bandmates put it all together from what they had and finished it. And actually, the person who introduced it to me is John Murray, who I met through Gilbert's show. Right, right, right. Uh, He found out I was a Kevin Gilbert fan, and I didn't know these albums were being released after his death. And he's like, oh, yeah, and he dumped them on me, and I said, oh, dear God. So Taming of the Shrew, Kevin Gilbert, also look up the Lamb performance with him. It's brilliant stuff. Than a tackle box. It's got really loud guitars. It's got a blasting cap and the fertilizer. It's got secret anguish of the network stars. It's I want to answer a it's question that was posed by one of my listeners in the uh, Love That Album Facebook group. David Kelly went and asked the question because I, I always like to post in the group, hey, the next show we're going to be doing blah, blah, blah. When I said that, right, Frank and I are going to be talking about Duke by Genesis. And he went and said, why? I have one question. <laughs> I have this one question. Why, when you have albums as fine as Foxtrot or Nursery Crime or Lamb Lies Down on Broadway? And I'll get to what my thoughts are in a moment, but I just wanted to say that when I said to you at the beginning of the year, hey, would you like to join me on a show? And I don't remember, you maybe you mentioned something about Genesis and I said, well, why don't we do Duke? And you said, I fucking love Duke. Good enough for me. So yeah. if I'd gone and said to you, hey, let's do Foxtrot, would you have said, well, could we do Duke instead? Well, but you know, but at, at the moment, so much of Duke resonates. First, I want to correct myself. In case I said Taming of the Shrew for the Kevin Neal, it's Shaming of the True. I I hope I didn't get that backwards. So look for shaming of the true because it's okay. late and I'm flaky. Um, <laughs> the, ener- the energy of Duke, right? I think Duke's travels, and I'm sure we'll get to all this, holds up to anything they ever did. And Duke's end, those two pieces, I think they're wonderful. To me, behind the lines is a cup of coffee. That will get my energy up listening to that. I think that the 808 drum break between behind the lines and Duchess going into that, uh, that, that to me is like being on a cloud. Like, that album has so much great stuff. Yeah, I know it's a little bit more pop rock feeling than the stuff you're used to. It's a, it's the beginning of a new era of Genesis, but goddamn, there's great stuff on it. I mean, so much guide vocal. That's a beautiful tune. Sure, it could borderline pop tune. Turn it on again. It was very big on the radio here in the States. 
misunderstanding, eh, you know, maybe we've heard it one too many times. But so for me, there might be a visceral. I was in the audience when I saw most of that and heard it for the first time and it changed my world. So there's that for me with Duke. But to this day, you know, now I'm bordering on becoming an old man and I still listen to stuff from Duke, either whether it be it live or from the album itself all the time. I just love the album. But yeah, I could have probably picked any album. But Duke, as I even mentioned, I, I we did Duke's End in my college cover band. I played keyboards on it. And uh, extremely, it is one of the worst keyboard performances you'll ever hear. Thankfully, the mix is so bad, you can't really hear it. It was a bar mix from a cassette recorder, probably. But uh, even then, I loved it. And that's 1989. Uh, here we are in 2020, and I'm still listening to it all the time. I might have pointed out in the Love That Album Facebook page, we should be thankful I was never going to bring up Calling All Stations for this show. Yeah, but I think that's a really good Tony Banks album. Calling All Stations is one of my favorite Mike and the Mechanics records. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's yeah. a really well-crafted Mike and the Mechanics, Tony Banks record. Yeah, good on them. <laughs> ne- never on this program. No, no, no. I don't like vitriol. As I said to Dave, I really do love Duke and there's no suppers ready on this album and there's nothing with what I call the Orwellian comedy of Get Them Out by Friday. There's nothing with that comedic bent. And I think some of that stuff could actually be quite funny. This album, unlike those early albums, we're not dealing with anything fantastical. I mean, I think maybe on And Then There Were Three, The Lady Lies might be the last song which lyrically goes to anything remotely fantasy related. But but even that song, you can understand what the hell's going on. I love The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Love it a bit. I haven't got a fucking clue what it's about. I know that there are probably people on the internet, this will surprise you again, who've written their theories what it's about, but I've read through the notes on the double record and it makes no sense to me, but I'm I'm a simple guy. This album, I think there are people who've gone and said, right, this is a concept record. And really you look at the artwork and you think there is a concept album going on here. And I will say, yes, it is, but not what you think it is. Yeah. Um, We'll come a little bit more to that. I would also say talking about some of the old stuff, especially, like some of the stuff from and then there were three it was heartbreaking to get older and read more current interviews with phil collins where he talk about really not liking any of that stuff not liking having to sing you know singing about bread bins in a song and you realize well what a fine actor that he was able to do all that even though his heart was never super in it and i think it was probably around the time that he went off the deep end and kind of disappeared and came back a much older unhealthier man but it's soul crushing to hear those interviews being such a fan and how he will say like very cavalier like i was never really that into that stuff that was all tony banks and i'm just the singer making it fun and then you couple that with the footage of the last tour they did, the rehearsals where he couldn't hit the notes, he couldn't play the drums. And it's so like, uh, I've seen some footage on YouTube where like he's trying to play this drum pattern from Duke's, Duke's, Duke's Travels, Travels and yeah. he throws his sticks away in frustration. And the, yeah. the other two are just a lot looking on. Yeah, that's all. If you get the When in Rome DVD, it's all 
all the, the outtake footage, it's all there. And it hurts to watch. And then people are like, aren't you going to go see Phil Collins on his new tour? It's really good. I'm like, I can't because I've seen him in his prime and growing up as a drummer or a fan of a drummer and getting into music because of it to go see him sit on a stool. I don't care how well produced the show is. I just can't do it to watch your idol fold up and, and disappear. I mean, look, I'm glad he's still doing it, but it's too painful to watch for me. When we go to watch a symphony orchestra, we're not seeing the composer there. We're seeing an orchestra interpret this work that might be comparatively recent or could be a couple of hundred years old. So sometimes though, when you're watching a band with a member who may not be able to achieve what they used to do, you're still getting to see the composer of that at work. And a few years ago, I went to see Brian Wilson and you know he had this big, beautiful band and he was sitting behind a keyboard that wasn't plugged in and he was singing where he could. And so some might have said, oh, that's a little bit sad. But I took the other attitude thinking, you know what? I'm watching a great composer. He's on stage. It's like he's conducting his orchestra. He's with his orchestra. And right. that to me was the privilege. So, I mean, yes, I see what you're saying about Phil not being able to drum or, or sing like in glory days, but you're getting to see essentially the composer. And I, I believe in like even for that 2007 tour, which I, from what I've read, it seemed like they, they simplified things down, but essentially he was able to play. But when he did the I'm Not Dead Yet tour of a couple of years back, he was just sitting down on the stage and his son was playing drums for him. It's hard to watch, but people have seen it said, no, it's really great. In fact, you were talking about with an orchestra and I'm trying to find this thing and I'm hope you may have seen it and I'm going to say it wrong because it's it's a European thing that I will probably butcher <laughs> and I don't know the backstory here it was Supper's Ready performed with an orchestra oh. and a singer I don't know Todd it was this brought to it's like some what's Todd Mobile or Todd Mobile it was like the Netherlands somebody out there listening is going you idiot how do you not know what that is? <laughs> I know a fireman who looks after So much so, I did a night probably, probably a couple of months ago where I was doing Facebook, you know, watch parties, and I queued up like two different, three different versions of Supper's Ready, and just did a live stream. And a lot of people I never knew were into Prague were like popping into that. And it might have, you might have been one of them. Supper's Ready. Anytime I hear it performed, Steve Hackett with his band Genesis from Supper's Ready, it always just. It's transcendent. But when seeing it with an orchestra and a choir with Steve Hackett on guitar, and I don't know who the rest of the musicians were, and this singer whose name I just don't know, kind of looks like Rick Wakeman if, if he was a singer. God, it's good. It just lifts you up and brings. So add an orchestra to anything and I'm there. You know what? I'm just going to be the contentious bastard here for a second. A few years ago, there was a recording put together, an orchestral version of Quadrophenia, which right, is I remember that. really one of my, the original is one of my all-time favoritest albums. I will love it forever. And Love Rain Over Me is to me one of rock music's greatest moments. So I haven't heard the whole of this orchestral version of Quadrophenia, but I did search out Love Rain Over Me, which was with the orchestra and an opera singer, and it was wrong. It 
was just yeah. so wrong. Take away the opera singer and put Roger Daltrey there. It still doesn't work because there's something about the dynamic. There's the oomph. This song, it's supposed to make your heart pound out of your chest. And this is just so, I won't say gentle, but it was... Muzak. Uh, yeah, it really was Muzak. That's perfect description. And I thought that was sacrilege for a song like that. I mean, sometimes where you combine the rock band and the orchestra. So if you think of an album like Deep Purple's Concerto for Group and Orchestra, that to me super works. Uh, yeah. I know that there have been a lot of bands which feel that they have to gain some credibility by doing something with an orchestra. Look, if they want to, that's their business. But I don't always think that they have to but certainly this quadrophenia rejig with an orchestra and an orchestra only at least what i've heard yeah i like the blend of the two and even on a smaller scale uh one of my favorite bands is a band called marillion which i know you haven't really gotten hip to yet but after their last big tour for their album fear which is pretty great they released a, a thing live from royal albert hall it's like a really big long blu-ray concert called all one tonight is the name of the show and they brought on a, a small orchestra supplemented by you know mark kelly's arsenal of keyboard and it's just a brilliant production there's a moment where i guess everybody in the crowd had been given a little a light that they could hold up on cue at this big moment you know genesis songs have these i call them the jump off a cliff moments where like it's building it's building like cinema show has that moment where it's like and then you just feel like you've just jumped off a cliff and you're flying it's just these moments they have that in a song called go and on cue the whole audience holds up their lights and they go to this long shot of royal albert hall just like you're in outer space with the lights everywhere on this music and the the band just breaks the most satisfying smile because you know everyone there felt that moment Mm. and with the orchestra behind them and that moment it's just ah Those are the moments to live for. I get that sometimes it can add some exhilaration to an existing cut. I'm not saying that it's wrong for each other, but I don't think it's always going to be. When you take an old album and redo it with an orchestra and throw an opera singer in the mix just to do something, that's a recipe for sadness, I think. It just doesn't doesn't work to me. (laughs) Look, we've been speaking for a while. We should probably get into talking about the album itself. Before we sort of go specifically for the album, Just, a little, I guess there's a little bit of history here. So I sent you a link in the last few weeks, some Genesis footage that I'd found. They recorded a concert yeah. several months before they released the album. And I'd read something about this where the original idea behind Duke was going to be a concept called The Story of Albert. And uh, yeah. it was so half the songs that we get on Duke are linked together. I mean, there's a long story I'm not going to go into about how they came to write the other songs. You know, Phil had some songs and then the others had some their own songs and they collaborated on others. But the original intention was a bunch of songs that they were going to link. And they decided that they didn't want to do that for the album because it already had a couple of 20-minute odes out there and they didn't want to get accused. Yeah, well, I think they, they didn't want comparisons to older epic works. They didn't want somebody saying, oh, they're trying to redo The Lamb or Supper's Ready or any of that stuff. They split up those songs for the album, but for the first few months, before they recorded and released the album, they were performing these songs as it's sweet. Those songs were Behind the Lines, Duchess, Guide Vocal, 
turn it on again, which started out as a bit of a little filler thing until they realized, well, no, we actually have a whole song here. And then Duke's Travels and yeah. Duke's End. So people out there should probably go look this up. But for the first few minutes, you sort of think, hang on, is Phil serious about this? So he says, yep, I've just yeah. been wasting your time. He tells the story that Albert is a guy who's a bit of a loner. He's a bit of a loser. He tells the story about Albert being rejected by the Duchess and then he wakes up in hospital one day after trying to fuck a TV. He has to go back into hospital because he's had a walking stick removed from his backside. And this is not the Phil Collins who wrote songs for Walt Disney films, apparently. This is, this is <laughs> what, I tell you what, if you could have gotten Phil Collins on Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast, Gilbert would have said something like, I hear that you originally wrote this song about a guy fucking a TV. That would have been absolutely amazing. You might get Gilbert's <laughs> interest if you do. But there was one other thing that I read that I thought was absolutely fascinating. I'm sort of, actually, I'm going back a little bit here. Just yeah, no. you, but just talking about the whole idea about concepts and stories. While I was sort of rereading recently the double album liner notes for The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, and I thought, okay, this is just very surreal. And I thought, who's the king of surreal visuals? And it was Alejandro Jodorowsky who made these films like El Topo in the early 70s. And I thought, wow, I wonder whether Peter Gabriel was a fan of Alejandro Jodorowsky and just the shit that comes into my head. And I looked yeah. it up. Not only was Gabriel a fan of Jodo, but he'd actually contacted him with the possibility of Jodo making a movie on The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. And I thought, holy shit, I'm not the only one who has this crap in his head. This was actually really a thing. It never came out, but at least I'm glad that it never became a thing with Ken Russell behind the director's chair. And I'd make no apologies to the Ken Russell fans out there because Tommy's a shit movie. <laughs> Whenever you can have that actress straddling a pillow covered in beans with her scantily clad self. I mean, like, it's not all bad. I well, mean, it ruined well, big beans for me, but, you know, still. <laughs> Look, I guess anything with Anne-Margaret is going to be yeah. worth watching a little bit, but story-wise, uh, uh, no. <laughs> and some of the worst green screen action I have ever seen in a movie in my life. But the point I wanted to make here is when I looked at the cover artwork back at the time and there were all these connections with this little character, Albert, that possibly lent to the theory that yeah, maybe this is a concept album. It's no more a concept album really than Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is. But having said that, and I'll come to this shortly, I do see a different concept, not necessarily a fantastical concept like hobbits and going through the woods and yeah. all that sort of stuff, but right. a modern day concept, which, oh, look, I'll come to it now. Basically, I see this as one of the great breakup albums. There's not every song. If you took some of these songs like Behind the Lines, the guide vocal, Misunderstanding, yeah. maybe at a pinch, Heath Hayes, Alone Tonight, and Please Don't Ask. And they're not even all written by Phil Collins. They're right. all, to me, they're all about Phil Collins' breakup with his wife. Right, yeah. which was kind of what was happening at the time, right? Wasn't this the album sort of in the midst of that turmoil? So, mm. yeah, I mean, it makes sense. It's the, You could take those songs and that could be face value, you know? Right, exactly. But yep. So instead, we have two breakup albums for the price of one. And I did yeah. read that Tony Banks had said that he originally rejected Phil's submission of In the Air Tonight to be on Duke. And then once that got to be big and famous, he said, oh, geez, I regret that. Um, yeah, interesting. I think at this point, what I want to do is maybe we go for a quick break. I'll play a podcast 
promo because that's what I like to do here. And then we'll come back and we'll talk exclusively about this album, probably with some diversions because that's what I like to do. But we'll focus on the album itself because that's ostensibly why some of the people out there have downloaded this show. So, all right, we'll be back in a couple of moments. Frank over there and me over here. Hi, I'm John Water. Hi, this is Dolph Lundgren. Hi, I'm Lance Henriksen. Hi, this is Keith Gordon. Robert Pune. Miguel Ferrer. Nancy Allen. Robert Davi. Richard Elfman. Ileana Douglas. Patrick Warburton. Wingshauser. Cliff DeYoung. Steve Railsback. Mr. D. William Cass. If you haven't been listening to the Projection Booth podcast, you're missing out. Each week, the Projection Booth brings you in-depth discussions of some of the most interesting movies ever made. I'm Mike White. No, the other one. I'm the guy who wrote the film fanzine Cashiers to Cinemart since 1994. Since early 2011, I've been co-hosting the Projection Booth podcast. Try us, won't you? I never try anything. I just do it. Visit the Projection Booth at projection-booth.com. And we're back from break. Welcome back to episode 140 of Love That Album, part of the Pantheon Network. And we are here ostensibly to talk about the album Duke by Genesis. I've done as much as I can to derail that conversation with talking about other things, but I didn't even take the time to talk about American Psycho. Do you like Phil Collins? I've been a big Genesis fan ever since the release of their 1980 album, Duke. Before that, I really didn't understand any of their work. It was too artsy, too intellectual. It was on Duke where uh, Phil Collins' presence became more apparent. And I'm not going to go any further. I'm- <laughs> What I occasionally like to do on the program where I think it's appropriate is talk a little bit about what other albums were at at the time. Hmm. And Genesis, once again, they're on the cusp of where they were going to go in their own career. And it seems a bit strange to me now because music fans of our age, we will listen and celebrate absolutely anything and everything. Whereas at the time you were either on team prog or you were on team punk because ostensibly punk music and new wave music was sweeping the remnants of that out the door. So admittedly, this is a very selective list and you could probably find a bunch of other albums that could contradict this. But Duke was released uh, the 28th of March in 1980 and in the three months prior and inclusive of March of uh, 1980. The albums that were released to the world were the debut album from The Pretenders, End of the Century by The Ramones, But the Little Girls Understand by The Knack, Get Happy by Elvis Costello, Argy Bargy by Squeeze, which we've done on this show, and the Psychedelic Furs debut album. Interesting. Equally. On the other side, at that time, there were albums being released, Glass Houses by Billy Joel, Short Stories by Vangelis, Against the Wind by Bob Seger, Mad Love by Linda Ronstadt, and On Through the Night by Def Leppard. So the point I wanted to make was the music landscape was not owned by any one style or any one group as much as the music historians might like to declare that it is. So sure, sure, maybe some things are going out of fashion, but for Genesis to release Duke at that time and for it to become apparently a very, very popular album was not necessarily out of the norm, but they sort of just decided that they still would have to change their way of doing things. I mean, I guess if you want to say, if you want to read between the lines, if you go back to Down and Out from, and then there were three, I'd just like to read a lyric that I made note of us. None of us are getting any younger. There's people out there who could take your place, a more commercial view, a fresher face.
those bands that I read out are possibly the signs, you know, the punk going into the new wave were doing what had to be done. But of course, you also had, you know, your Vangelis's who were, it's not quite like Genesis, but it's not a long way from it either. It's closer, right. to, closer to Genesis than the Sex Pistols. And, you know, your Bob Seegers and your Linda Ronstadt's were still the long established pop acts who were doing their thing. So I, I guess... Duke is a bit of this and a bit of that, but it's not necessarily out of place. But just looking at it from our age and our perspective in this time, we don't think that there's any contradiction in loving a Ramones album or a Pretenders album and loving Genesis, whereas at the time it might have been seen as, no, you can't do both, you're one or the other. But So what do you think has happened in the previous 40 years? Or did you at the time love both? At the time, I listened to everything, right? So I grew up on in suburban Long Island outside of New York, uh, New York city and uh we had a station out there wbab right and wbab long island to this day if you go out there and turn it on you're still hearing the same 20 songs right it would be leonard skinner followed by a bowie cut followed by of course billy joel who's from long island so you're mm. legally ob- obligated to play it <laughs> um but it was that mixed bag but mostly of you know the rock of the era and then classics that's that's where you're going to hear your led zeppelin so i listened to them all the time and then i would listen to wnbc from new york from New York City, which would be some more of the pop music. In fact, NBC was always dialed in on my alarm clock radio going back to when I was in fifth grade and not knowing anything about Genesis from Wind and Weathering, your own special way was played all the time in rotation. And I just thought, okay, there's that song. And I lump that song in with Carly Simon and anyone else of that era with those sort of romantic bow. I didn't know Genesis. And then it's so weird to then uh, circle back and go like, oh, that, there that is lumped in with the rest of that album. And, and yet it got them on commercial radio for, for that. So, so I listened to everything. But at the time I was like, I was all into Pat Metheny, all that stuff. So that was my world then so the pop rock stuff i would just turn my nose up and then kind of as the older i've gotten the more i appreciate what was really going on you know it's just sort of look back uh, what what these things were when you grow up a little bit and you're not turning your nose up at every pop rock i used to joke around with a, uh, the same friend that got me into gilbert's podcast uh, when i was a listener before i ended up producing it was uh somebody used to joke around with like she was into all the groups of that some of that you've rattled off and even more alternative rock things and it's like oh those bands with their two and three chord songs that's the way i felt because at the time i was into rush and yes and genesis and you know complicated music and you get older and realize it doesn't have to be complicated it's okay to have guide vocal thrown in there from time to time to break up the hammering away at it all and it's weird now because i i look at genesis as prog rock and I look at other prog rock things like I've got on the mailing list for some record labels, having reviewed a couple of live shows and albums for some New York papers. I do a lot of freelance writing. So I get these updates and one of them, oh, I can't remember the name because I'm just so fried, but but it was an album that they sent me and I listened to it and go, I can't review it because I just, I don't like it. And it's nothing against the artist. It's a, you know, it's somebody that you would lump in with Dream Theater. I, I wish I could remember the guy's name. He's very religious in his music and his lyrics. But there's this like profound statement followed by and then like really fast guitar like you know look we're playing some odd time now and everything sounds like death metal but more intricate and then it comes back to some big singing moment and then right back to and it just that doesn't float my boat the way supper's ready the lamb or even any of anything on duke does like i so i love prog but modern prog starts to sound to me you know people say hip-hop all sounds 
the same. Well, so does modern Prague. Every band sounds like they're doing the same masturbatory soloing over violent drums and odd time signatures. It's like, we get it. You can play. That's really great. So would you say that maybe modern Prague has lost a sense of melody? Because one thing that you could say about all those early Genesis albums or, or your Yes stuff was a really strong sense yeah. of melody. Melody. and But now it's about technique, I think. And look, it's not to knock them. I know they're brilliant musicians. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so many great people playing that stuff. <laughs> the point I wanted to make about more where Genesis were headed and where they fit in at that time, they wanted to do their own thing. I don't think they were sort of like looking so much to what was happening outside their world. I will suggest that Avacab, a couple of the songs, and maybe Avacab itself, is maybe their sole tip of the hat to New Wave. Very much so. Was it you or was it me? Or was it in your sheep? Was it I or was it me? Or was it X or Z? Was it you or was it me? Or was it in your sheep? Was it I or was it me? Or was it X or Z? Was it you or was it me? Yeah, I think they even talk about that. I think part of the reason they remixed a lot of it is they want the drums were meant to be much punchier and edgier. I can't remember the specifics, but on one of the bonus materials on one of the DVDs, they talk about who done it and what that was meant to be and what how it turned out wasn't quite what they envisioned. That's very much a uh, new wave or a non-new wave band's attempt at new wave. I can't imagine any other band sort of doing it, but it sounds like that to me. I appreciate it for what it is, but it's a pity that a band like Genesis would have to feel like they need to do that. One of the things I've that's bothered me about music in general over the years, because I was involved in the music industry long before I got into post-production, I mixed records for a living and tracked bands. That was my bread and butter for my 20s and 30s. But to back then you would see like a record would come out that was sort of groundbreaking or a new style. And then every record label found their version of it and quick, get it out the door. Or artists would change course to try to fill the need for that thing. And the curtain gets pulled back and you realize the mechanics behind the music industry. And in, in a weird way, I lost interest in a lot of music. Maybe that's why I'm still stuck with Genesis from the 70s. In my head. <laughs> because you realize the, the machine behind it and what drives it and the economics of it. And then you look back and go, oh, well, of course they felt they had to do whodunit. But why would a band that big feel that they needed to? And then you look at where it got them mm. and it makes sense sense like they're a household name phil collins was you couldn't turn around without seeing him uh he was everywhere uh, thankfully at a time that i was really really into genesis and phil collins so uh so it worked out i did see some interviews from the period where i think phil was saying that he's a bit fed up as i guess he would be with people saying to him your solo success you're dictating what genesis is doing by making this great prog band sound all poppy and he said no no it wasn't me if it was anyone there's Mike Rutherford. He wanted to take the band in a different direction. And I mean, notwithstanding whatever Mike Rutherford's reasons for doing that, I believe that because if he's got this solo career to do the sort of songs that he wanted to do, then why would he want to do the same thing with the band that he's been playing with already for 10 or 11 years? You know, they right. did thing. It does seem more like a natural evolution. So 
to the album itself. I've sort of seen this album in two different ways. All along, I thought of this album as like a piece of cinema. And this is where sequencing, I think, has become really, really important. So you get your opening cuts behind the lines, which is this big opening moment. I mean, just sort of think like the opening of something like La La Land. I mean, I don't know if you don't yeah. like the film, then sorry about the comparison. But this big, bright opening, and then you get a bit of the story development. So you have your, your duchess misunderstanding is like your montage scene it sounds to me yeah. maybe i've got synesthesia is that what it's called where you see the music or something like that please don't ask is the dark before the dawn and then duke's travels duke's end is the hero of the film beating up the bad guys crashing cars and then walking off into the sunset with the gal um, yeah it seems something cinematic to me it does absolutely in, in the last week though i've sort of been thinking in a way parts of the album almost sound like a broadway musical to me because all of a sudden I've, I've got this vision in my head of boom ba 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 boom ba ba and all this choreography with the jazz hands Those of you who can't see this, he's actually doing jazz hands. <laughs> yes, I am. Um, and there's all these moments that make it sound like a Broadway musical, but either way, it does sound musically like it's telling a story, even if the whole notion Absolutely. of going from one song to the next, it's not really telling a narrative like other concept albums. Although, although I'll say for the record there, that I don't think that there are many concept albums that have an intention of telling a story, really tell the story very well. Because, you know, Quadrophenia, one of my favorite albums of all time but it was left to Frank Rodan to fill in the story of Jimmy the Mod that you don't get on the record uh, and yeah. probably countless examples but even that notwithstanding I still think that the songs at least in their order tend to go all over the place except for the moments where Phil Collins saying I'm really really miserable without you hey let's make this right or that sort of thing I love you so much that I want to buy you a mansion in Miami so you can lock me out of it one day right. <laughs> that's on the a special edition. Uh, yeah. I do see this as very cinematic for that reason. It does have that big start, character development, a couple of spiky moments, slows down, and then you get the third act, which is all exciting and explosions. And that's how yeah. this album sounds to me. And that's as much to do with sequencing as it is with anything. So, But it sounds to me like they really, truly thought about the order that they wanted this album yeah. to go in. And that's part of its success to me. That's interesting too. And you think about when it came out on Vine, how much of the album sequence had to do with how much time they could fit on each side of the record to change the order. So for all we know, there might have been a different agenda and they said, well, you can only fit 18 minutes and sound good. And so we got to flip it around. Like, you know, who knows how they change things? I still think that if it had come down to it, if the fidelity had been different, if they could have cut the vinyl differently, then yeah. maybe misunderstanding would have ended ended up on side two and turn it on again might have ended up on side one. To me, when I listened to it on disc... Or, or now stream the album, it feels like Misunderstanding does kick off a second part of the record to me. It's like a change of, I don't know, it's been a while since I've really listened to the whole thing straight through. I think we'd probably both agree that the album had to start with Behind the Lines and it had to end with Duke Travels and Duke's End. Yeah, absolutely. That Duke's Travels, Duke's End is basically saying, all right, to the prog fans, this is our farewell gift here. Well, <laughs> look, look, as I said before, there were proggy related things that they did 
on subsequent albums and they always did prog stuff in a live context but to me that song is maybe the last great hurrah at least from to the 70s side of genesis yeah but there are moments even on abacab which gets a bad rap like there's moments of me and sarah jane that could be right off and then there were three there are moments you know melodically in dodo and lurker that could be from the lamb really if you think about it Production value is different, but there are these moments. In fact, that that synth melody that's in uh, Lurker. I remember being in. It was the year I saw Genesis. Eight, no, yeah, eighth grade. Sorry, my band teacher Sal Piccolo, rest in peace. You know, as I was a budding young drummer, knew that I was sort of into this stuff, synths and all, and said, "Well, look, you know, the school bought a mini Moog or mini Moog, if you want to say it." the way it's supposed to be. I said, you know, we don't want to leave it here over the summer because who knows, it might get stolen. Would you like to take it home for the summer? So I took home this mini Moog and I would just sit in my room and I dialed in on the Moog that sound emulating that that bit of lurker and I would just play that fucking melody on a loop till my parents would... You know, you've got to gotta cut it out. Like, add some more slider to it. It's just like driving them nuts. But man, that was it for me. I was hooked, you know? I want to digress a bit because part of the success of this album, I mean, it could be argued certainly from at any stage of Genesis's career, but it certainly becomes really apparently here is the man we've mentioned many times, Phil Collins as drummer. And even the people who don't necessarily care for Phil Collins as a solo act would never deny Phil Collins as a drummer. And I'm sure that Monster. there was a time in the, in the 80s where you know the only people who knew him were for you know, the easy lover and you can't hurry love, didn't actually know that he was a skinsman. But I would also argue that not only is he a great drummer, but he's also a super diverse drummer. I'm not even going to hang it on him for that horrible fucking gated snare sound. I loved it. I tried to emulate that. I was, As a drummer... Trying to achieve that sound, I just, I just love that. Yeah, no, um, I, I got an acoustic kit with not attached to anything, just like a crisp, clean snare. Although not a piccolo, yeah. piccolo is the worst sound in all of drumming. I <laughs> fucking hate it. But anyway, that's that's besides the point. But here's his style that he's done with his solo recordings. And then there's the complex style that he does on the Genesis albums. And then there's a style for a band we haven't mentioned yet, but I'm sure you're a fan of Brand X. Now, I recently found myself re-listening to Moroccan Roll and Unorthodox Behavior. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's sure, it's a lot like the other fusion jazz bands of the time. It's really, if you don't know it's Brand X, you could be thinking, wow, this is a great Weather Report album or or a great Aldemiola album. There's a Phil Collins solo concert from the early 80s where I think they break into, they go from one of his songs, I think they break into And So To F from Brand X for a period of time in the middle of the show. Wow. Uh, worked in with, with the horns. It's like they just do like, it's so Phil Collins, but then they bring in the horns and the whole bit. Mm. Great moment. I just remember watching that going, that's not Phil Collins, that's Brand X. Oh my God. Like, you know, sitting at the edge of the bed 
bed watching it on this TV. Sure, there are complexities with changing rhythms on Genesis Records. And when you think behind the lines, how there are moments there, certainly on Duke's Travels and Duke's End, where there's some amazingly complex bits, but yeah. that's for an art rock or prog rock band. You listen to Nuclear Burn on Unorthodox Behavior. He sounds like a different drummer. is just a real sign of respect for the man as a talented instrumentalist. But then you listen to the streets of Soho and you go, oh, well, there's Phil Collins doing pop, but now with Brand X. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But once again, that diversity, he liked a lot of everything. And he, sure, yeah. I, I, look, I'd like to think that he wasn't doing anything that he didn't want to do artistically. Not, oh, wow, this is getting me a whole lot of money and a whole lot of new fame. I think I'm going to stick. I mean, okay, I guess a musician wants to eat and they want to be successful. But I like to think that he really liked what it was that he was doing artistically. Um, yeah. It would have been nice to have seen how much longer Brand X, because I think Brand X was just like his fun band in between Genesis records at, yeah. at the time. But yeah, that was not insignificant or not an insubstantial number of albums that he recorded with them. So I just wanted to point out, you know, I just absolutely admire that versatility. He's an amazing drummer. Every Any drummer will tell you he's an amazing drummer. Like I would jam trying to do I remember my, my buddy Mark V mm. and I in high school, we would sit, you know, before band or we'd cut class and we'd be sitting in the band room with all the drums we could muster up, emulating those drum duets from all the Genesis concerts of the era because they're just so fun, you know, it's just, you know, always breaking into Los Sendos and that would be like a music orgasm at that point. album itself, as I've already gone and said, it does start out with this big, I'm going to call it the Broadway show tune. I was going to say originally Bombast, and there are moments of Bombast on the album. It sounds joyous. It sounds celebratory. It's a fanfare. It's regal. Definitely a fanfare. Absolutely. Hence, I guess, the name of Duke. They're going to do something called Duke. It's going to be royal. It's going to be big. Bring in the horses. Let's have this big parade and just uh, but I've, I've still got this thing in my head as I said before great choreography and coming back to those jazz things <laughs> this, the other interesting thing is that for a time it seemed like any bands that were trios in the 80s 70s going into the 80s they had to have that full sound. Now, I understand that these bands, especially bands with the fame and the wealth of groups like you know, Genesis or whoever, you know, the, the, the trios, they could afford to spend time overdubbing and re-overdubbing and who knows how many bits Phil is playing over himself. But still, that doesn't take away from the fact that for this trio album, it sounds, you know, especially at this opening moment, it sounds big and celebratory and you sort of imagine 
mentioned that must be a five or six piece band at least and it's just these three guys i mean okay the, they wanted to make the synths sound mighty and obviously bill's toms my god oh, those toms yeah you know but also the fact that that on top of that is like intense bongos right yes like there's that percussion layer happening that is so weird you don't expect to say bongos and genesis in the one sense but yes you do hear that yes i I brought up watching when in rome this weekend there's a moment in the concert where phil is singing and playing drums and chester is just holding a big shaker Mm. it might have been follow you follow me i can't remember what song it was but i turned to my friends and said you know i never thought of this before but why isn't Chester playing drums and Phil is singing and holding a shaker? Why does he playing drums and singing when Chester's right there and all he gets to do is go, it just seems like it's such an odd, I guess it was like, let's remind people that I can sing and play drums at the yes. same time. I can't remember. So Chester's a, uh, a, an alumnus of the Mothers of Invention, right? Yeah, he's, yeah, he's been around. Then I think he went, he's like one of the heavy hitters, so to speak, in Nashville for a lot of albums. Now, there was a time where Bill Bruford, pre-Chester Thompson, was the second drummer. So between... Yes, yeah, between, seconds out. Uh, yeah, okay, on that, you see, there you go, list of shame. I don't actually have that one in my yeah. collection. So I've already gone and said that Behind the Lines is the big regal moment. But for me, the album in the sort of leading towards the middle, the big bombast moment is Man of Our Times. So the beginning is sort of light and shade dynamic. It goes up, it goes down like a film would. But Man of Our Times is like that bit in the movie where we're just going to ratchet this bad situation up a bit and then the, our heroes have to work out how to find their way out of it. It'll be yeah. bubbling away. But but this is the big shit happens moment. Oh, dear. What yeah. happened? Changing the plot. Man of Our Times is a tune that really early on I did work out how to play on the drums. And it's not a hard piece. But it's one of those pieces which, if you don't play it with confidence, then people yeah. are going to tell you're not really good. This is sort of tune which I think, even if you haven't been playing for a long time, but if you play it with a bit of confidence, you can make it sound really, really great. Just this one motif, boom, boom, bam, boom, boom, But it's that makes the tune. And that was just such a thrill to be able to work out. But had you heard this? I believe, and that was a Mike Rutherford composition. He has said he's embarrassed by it. He hates it. Really? Mike Rutherford hates it. Man Is of it? Our Times. I find that hard to believe. It's easily one of my favorite songs on the album because yeah, it's well, got such bite to it. Yeah, but we're talking about the man who went and released All I Need Is a Miracle and The Living Years. Which, you know, not many people realize this, but All I Need Is a Miracle was originally written for The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. I just and, and made that up. Oh, I, just, I was, I was <laughs> thank, thank. <laughs> Peter Gabriel would have said, I'm quitting now. 
Uh, <laughs> as I said, it's a thing you have to play with confidence. You don't even need to be a great drummer. You just need to be able to say, I can pull this off and no half-heartedness and you'll make it sound fantastic. Yeah. Um, I love its bombast. And normally, I'm not the big stadium arena rock sort of guy, but there's something about this. Maybe it's Tony Banks' melodicism on the synth. I guess a lot of the stadium rock is about the guitar. In this one, it's about the synth, but the melody of the synth, not about the synth for its own sake, which is unusual because a lot of this album is actually electric piano heavy rather than being yeah. synth heavy. But this is the big synth moment on the album. You know, misunderstanding I can skip almost every time. I think it's only because it was put, it was overplayed on the radio here so much. And, you know, when I listen to the album, I listen to it for a couple of minutes. And I'm like, I, you know, I've heard it so much. I just, I tend to want to get right to Heat Haze. So, so <laughs> yeah. tell me, does that song production-wise sound like it belongs on a different album? Misunderstanding? Yeah, possibly. Everywhere else on the, on the album, even the ballads sound big. This one sounds really compressed to my ears. But, you know, there is a thing, like, if they know, like, if you listen to Sting's album that has Englishman in New York, what's that uh, album? Nothing Like so the much. Sun. Yeah, Nothing Like the Sun. So that album, every track on that is lush and rich, but there are a couple of cuts that they must have known, like, these are going to be the singles, these are going to be for radio, and they were mixed accordingly, right? So there are some things that are squashed really compressed they don't have any of the richness and depth and then others do so there are songs that i'll listen to and i'll suddenly hear this shift in how much it was compressed and how it was mixed and go oh well that's clearly they had their eyes on radio for that one because there are some things that wouldn't i mean this is before streaming so maybe that was it like maybe misunderstanding but it, it does sound a little bit more squished compared to the bigness of all the other stuff mm. maybe i'm overthinking it but i do know on records there are the songs that yeah these are going to be the singles and they'll be like the needles don't move they're so squashed these are ready to go to air and design that way versus the you know other tracks like the song englishman in new york from that album when you get to that drum break that wonderful shit, like that's a great little moment probably wouldn't air that all that often because it's just too dynamic versus can't remember the big hits off of that it's been so long we'll be together yeah so that yeah that's a perfect example when you listen to that that is so squashed there's there's very little bass and it's really super compressed but that is ready to cut through am radio whereas some of the more lush songs are just not mixed that way but was am radio still a thing over in the states like in the mid 1980s people were shifted over to fm too but you know Back then, even when I would mix commercials early on in my career, you did the stereo mix and then you did the mono mix for AM radio. You know, you had to take that all into consideration. You know, I'd be a great guest for you to talk about some of this stuff. My friend Andy Vandette, mm -hmm. great mastering engineer. He's done all of Rush's albums and tons of others, of course. But I still learn from him. Like, there was mm. just a comment. A buddy of mine was, after our hang Saturday night, he broke out his vinyl copy of The Lamb and gave it a good new listen and was talking about how much time they fit on each side of vinyl and didn't that degrade the quality mathematically and and then andy chimed I, I tagged him in the post and he chimed in and answered the 
how that all works and, and the, the loss and how they compensate and the mastering of rights. So he's stuff you don't think about. And the limitations of vinyl really affected how things were mixed. And now mm-hmm. you could be very different. A college, I won't say friend because we never really hung out socially, but really gifted guy named David Fridman. He was a couple of years ahead of me in college. He went on to produce the Flaming Lips and Mercury Rev and all this great stuff that he he played in. And I remember an early version of the lips were at our college studio and Dave's mission was it's a CD world. Now we're going to mix this as hot and as loud as we can and hopefully distort the inputs of receivers, make it so scorchingly hot. We want to push the limits of digital and use every last bit that's available. And he kind of did. And I had the distinct pleasure. It was, (laughs) I was tasked by the Dean of the school of music as president of the recording society, our association, my senior year of school. First thing I was told is there's, been a band here recording all summer and your first official act is to get them out they've been stinking up the place leaving booze bottles around the cleaning staff is complaining so get them out it was the flaming lips right, right. <laughs> fredonia new york doing their first big album oh, right. who knew i hear they, they might have stunk up the place with beer bottles but i hear they didn't use jelly so there you go they don't like jelly they don't like jelly uh <laughs> Genesis. Man, I could listen to Duke's Travels and Duke's End all together. I remember getting a bank of Mellotron samples for my Kurzweil at some point and getting the flute sound, which we all know from the Beatles, right? Mm. And then going, Strawberry oh, Fields. Yeah. So that's like that segue between Duke's Travels and Duke's End. It's like, ah. Oh. That's only just hit me. I never thought about that before. Yep. That's the flute. before the alternative sequence of songs that could have made a nice, I don't know, concept side, if you will, would have been yeah. behind the lines, guide vocal, misunderstanding Heath Hayes, Alone Tonight and Please Don't Ask, about Phil's marriage breakup. I mean, he officially went and said that Face Value was that album, but at least this is a good proto yeah. sequence if you want to play it in that. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a lot of self-pity, a lot of woe is me, when can I see you, when can I touch you, and yeah. Please Don't Ask. And 
oh yeah, don't worry. Like I'll, I'll be fine. I'm alone again tonight. Just switch off the light behind me. There's a yeah, yeah. there's a lot of that, but then it was also building up the sound for what became the Phil Collins ballad of the eighties. One of the most amazing juxtapositions for me is guide vocal as ballad mm. and then guide vocal at the end that gives me chills man i just that it to me is like ah oh, that's an emotional i have an emotional response to it every time i hear it that's the thing possibly why some people have possibly confused this as being a grand concept album because there are motifs that are used in the first three minutes of behind the lines that they come back to and there are motifs that they return to in the duke's travels duke's end end of the album which is very much a musical theater sort of thing uh, yeah it's more expensive explicit when it's played angrily at the end of the right. album. In the original version that we hear, the third track of the album, it's more like Phil is hurt and don't leave me alone. Take what's yours. Be damned. And then yeah. at the end, it's I'm the one who brought you yeah, exactly. this exactly. Fuck you. Go away. I am the one who guided you this far All you It's the same feeling I get when Phil would perform the the closing section of the musical box, like in their 1991 tour for the We Can't Dance album, when they did that montage of the the old stuff, Mm. when he leans into the light and it's like, why don't you touch me? You know, it's like that, the pulsing light in his face. It's that same response I get to Duke's travels and bringing back the guide vocal, just that, like the screaming Phil, that always makes me feel good (laughs) in a weird way. You know, it's like, it's like, yeah, you tell them fuckers. <laughs> I do want to bring up one final cut on the album because I think early on in our discussion, you went and said, yeah, okay, there was this and there was that. This is the, obviously the pop cut. I'm going to make the argument, as I'm sure other people already have, smarter people than me have made the point, that Turn It On Again is prog disguised as pop. I read a really fascinating anecdote. I didn't know this, but when Peter Gabriel had lost money on his first WOMAD festival, yeah, yeah. so Genesis put on a benefit to help him yeah, yeah. build them up again. I didn't realize this. So they did a set for the concert for benefit of him. And they did basically all the old Gabriel era stuff. Yeah. Uh, Duke had recently been out and Turn It On Again was the big single out on the charts. So they thought, well, it'd be a little bit silly to not perform it. So they did that at the end. And I didn't realize that, you know, Gabriel fancied himself as a bit of a drummer. So he said, look, you know, Phil, you go out and you sing. I can play this. It's boom, 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 boom. And he fucked it up because you got multiple time signature changes. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I first heard this back when I was that age, I was only thinking as a drummer of 4-4 four, four time. So it, I was thinking, there's something unusual about this. There's something unusual about this. It's only as I went on that I realized, oh, that's what's going on here. <laughs>
something like bars of six four and alternating bars of seven to four. In yeah, the, yeah. Some people say it's thirteen eight. Uh, some people say it's any citrus fruit. <laughs> a little GGACP joke. But when he gets to I get so lonely when she's not there. Sounds like he's doing two bars of three four, one bar of two four. Two bars of four four, three bars of three four, and two bars of two four. I, worked yeah. there. I was listening to this like a couple of nights ago. So I got to do this. Got to write it out. What's he doing there? And who does that on a top forty pop single? But he disguised it by doing dum 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 dum. So yeah. it doesn't sound complex, but you have to have the mind of a confident drummer and and an experienced drummer to be able to count that all in. But even as you're working your way around, just I imagine. You'd be counting under your breath. What's it? If I had to think about the mechanics of that song, I probably wouldn't be able to play it on the drums. Yeah. But I can sit in my car and listen to it and tap right along with it and get every beat because I've heard it so many times. And you don't even think about the time changes. You're just playing it. You know, you're just mm. playing and you just know exactly where every odd measure is going to pop up. It just happens. I love when they do that. You mm. know, there's, there's a few things, very few pop things will do that these days. But God, that was a nice way to slip in some non-danceable beats. <laughs> into a... That's the point. Can you just imagine someone going off to like a, a I don't know, a, a disco or whatever. And the DJ goes and puts on that record and people are doing contortions trying to keep up with it. And yeah. on the surface, it does sound like a pop song. It's deceptive. And that's the secret to its success. The musicians or people who know how to count, familiar with the concept, will say, I see what you're doing there. And the people yeah, who yeah. don't aren't going to feel terribly disturbed by it. That's a, that's part of the song's genius. I really do think so. And I've read somewhere that that song never left their sets throughout the rest of the time that Phil Collins was playing with the band. Interesting. And it'll serve Peter Gabriel right for saying, yeah, yeah, don't worry, Phil, you go and you sing. I'll take care of drum duties. Yeah, take that, Peter. Speaking of Gabriel, another one of the guests on my podcast is a, a drummer named um, Alan Schwartzberg, who you may not know, but he's a monster. I mean, his, his career goes all the way back to like the Christmas classics that you might have grown up hearing on some of the old orchestras and all that. But Alan played on Peter Gabriel's first solo album. Alan oh, was wow. like the session drummer. So he's the guy on Salisbury Hill. Talk about a song that is a song you can kind of hum along and tap with, but that's got odd time all over the place, right? Yes, yes. So it's the same kind of vibe. But yeah, and Alan then talk about when we were talking earlier about genres and what albums were out. Alan played on uh, all the disco hits as a session drummer, including uh, everyone will remember the Star Wars disco Miko. stuff. That was, yeah, that's him. Oh, wow. Uh, and then, you, you know, if you were a fan of David Letterman's show, Alan would pop up sporadically playing drums with the band or percussion gigs. But he, and he's on every, his credit list goes on forever. So that'll be a fun one to listen to. And, and musicians like that. It's, but Salisbury Hill fits right in there in terms of like, you just go, you got that in your head. And like, what you don't realize is you're tapping along 
belong to some odd time signatures in there that kind of get thrown yes. your way. And I really respect that. I wonder whether the Phil Collins detractors, and i got to admit that you know, with no jacket required onwards, I had no interest. But I wonder whether a lot of the detractors also went back at Gabriel for making the So album because that's where he sort of went pop. I think that's a terrific album. It's okay for him to do it, but not okay for young Phil to do it. Yeah, I mean, look, there's nothing Phil Collins did that I didn't love until a certain point. It's like got to be where I kept buying albums and then I just wasn't. I think my tastes and my life changed and that that kind of, it's the filter through which your music processes, right? To this day, certain songs put me in a time and place. So we keep talking about Marillion. You keep bringing it up, man. Why do you keep bringing up Marillion? <laughs> God, I'm trying to talk about Genesis. But I listened to the earlier Marillion where their singer was a guy named Fish. And it's a lot of anger. It's, it's bitterness and anger. It's angst. It's unhappiness. And it resonated with me at a time in my life that I really loved it. And now when I go back to listen to it, I'm like... I can't, I can't, because it's like, you know, they were trying to be, a, well, not trying, but they were very much an homage to Genesis, right? They had a song called Grendel, which was their Supper's Ready. And I listen to it now and go, yeah, I just, I, I'm not in the mood for that. Like, my life is different now. I'm, I can't be that angry and appreciate it. But a lot of their stuff, and their newer stuff has. They have a new singer. It's more commercial stuff, theoretically. No big pop hits, per se. But you change. So there was a period of time where I could listen to No Jacket Required, no problem. I, I love Loved everything that was on there, every new Genesis thing, everything Phil Collins did. I think the last album I consciously bought was Dancing Into the Light. And then it just became such supermarket music, background music that I lost interest. But it's not to slam him. It's like, that's what he's doing now. And it, and it didn't resonate with me as much. But but everything at some point did. And it wasn't until streaming that I started to go back and like, let me catch up on what I missed and I found on Apple Music, there's a uh, hot night in Paris. It's like Phil Collins with a big band doing the Los Endos Suite. Have you heard that? No, I have not. Oh, God, it's Phil Collins with a jazz orchestra doing Los Endos. And it's phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All this stuff that I missed. And I kind of go back. But I, I, I don't love when he kind of redoes the classics. And I... I they didn't buy them where someone else cut together all his drum pieces to make an album because Phil couldn't play anymore. And then, you know, the going back or whatever it was called. Like, I, I kind of lost interest. But it doesn't mean I don't love Phil Collins. And there's still pieces of those albums that I'll still, if they come on, I'm not going to skip them. But at the, at the time it resonated, and now I'm an older man, I'm a happier man for the most part. They don't resonate. The things, the, the, the anger songs don't stick with me as much. We've spoken for quite a long time. I'm not sure whether or not we've, how much we've it... barely scratched the surface. Oh, Is that what you're trying to say? We've barely, we've barely scratched, scratched the surface. So I better not say that otherwise Frank might sue me. Maybe he has copyright. I used to tease him about that, and I think I made him self-conscious about it at one point because like every week he would say it and I'd be in the control and I'd throw my arms up in the air. I'm like, can we find another phrase? <laughs> I think if it wasn't going to be you, it was going to be a lot of the fans in the Facebook group. I think at one point I did make uh, GGACP bingo cards. I think every, you know, everybody gets the orange story is the center. Everybody gets that one. And then it's like, if he says... Gil, do this impression. You get that one. And we barely scratched the surface with <laughs> one. Chico needed the money was one. <laughs> As I said, we've, we had barely scratched the surface. And there are probably a million ways that this conversation could have gone. But I sort of think that we've given the listeners enough of an impression that this is an album that they need to search out if you haven't heard anything prior to this album. 
in the Gabriel years, Steve Hackett years, up to this, if you only know them for the big hits from the 80s onwards, you really do need to search Duke Out. It is a complete work. I mean, I know that, as you say, Misunderstanding was a big hit single and Turn It On Again was a big hit single, but this album, Ebbs and Flies, we haven't even given any time to songs like Duchess and, and the like. But Duchess, I love, I mean, I think I said it earlier, I don't know if we were rolling or not, but that... 808 drum based thing that they sort of stuck between behind the lines and duchess i could listen to that on a loop i could like you can that's like that's like a meditation piece for me that that ambient drifting yes i love that Okay, so that's one thing that I think was very brave of them to do for a band like that, and probably a lot of commercial bands at the time, where you had to get the listener's attention straight away. There's no mucking around. And this is a seven minute cut, and the first two and a half minutes is just this slow meditation piece. It's basically saying, I've got nowhere to go. That's okay. I'm just going to make this as a drone. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a very positive light. Just let yourself be drifted along two and a half minutes before the melody actually kicks in and i respect that a whole hell and it works completely it's beautifully done and then they rip your face off with those drums going into it's so brilliant you know i mentioned when we took a little break earlier my buddy alan friedman great engineer a local gilbert fan and i don't remember we'd recorded this already but so he pointed out that there was this record label called duke once he'd seen the logo we were watching when in rome and uh, he saw the duke caricature he said oh i just saw that on these there's a record label called duke is that related to this it's the same icon and all of us were scratching and we hadn't heard of it and he got home and he sent me some links to so apparently there was duke records which was a division of atlantic that was the members of genesis producing bands and they had a, a few bands none of which became any kind of hits but they did this duke records thing it was interesting i'd never heard of it didn't i learn from apple records yeah right but then i also hadn't yeah i mean but then who knew apple records would turn into a computer company and do so well yeah that, and that's just they know how to pivot but just like you hit me to the duke suite thing the the story of albert like i had no idea and i've been a genesis fan forever how i never knew that is beyond me but you grow up you have a family you have a kid and you stop sitting around the record player all the time no i I take the opposite notion i have two kids i drag them to the record player with me i feel like a bad parent because while we have echo devices all around our house and any number of stereos for my daughter to play her music i haven't broken out my turntable and crates of records but i think we're getting there okay good man get that hooked up for her nothing must be done silent as a day can be far off sounds of others on their chosen run I think we've finished our Genesis conversation at this point. Uh, (laughs) We've had a lot of digressions, but that's why I really love doing this show because 
I think we're going to be talking about one thing. We end up doing a lot of other things. So I want to say huge thank you to you, Frank. Um, yeah. I know it's what time is it? Is it like half past two in the morning? Well, it's 2.30, but this is my normal bedtime these days in lockdown because I've been working with actors, like I said earlier. I've been setting people up with home studios and all this. And it's not uncommon for me to get the LA people. They're three hours behind and some of them might start working with me at midnight my time. Right. Uh, that's died down a bit, but it's been, you know, my, my schedule has shifted. But because I'm no longer commuting, I can go to bed at three and wake up at nine. Still got six hours of sleep and I'm ready for the day. Right. If, assuming the math works out on that. So, I'm sure yeah. it does. Happy to do it because I was going to be up anyway. I taught a class tonight mm. that ended a little late, so we were late to start. But you and I have been talking now, let's see, 11 and 12, 1, 2 30. So it's been two and a half hours of. Uh, 12, one, two, no, three and a half hours we've been talking because we, wow. we did about like an hour and a quarter before we even started recording. Um, oh, right. So, that was where all the good stuff happened. And Frank showed me these pictures of orange wedges going in the wrong places and coffee tables and chickens. So my huge thanks to you, Frank, for staying up so late, even though I know it's part of your regular time on COVID time anyway. COVID but, time, yeah. So, yeah, hugely grateful for you making the time. I really have loved this conversation. And so just once again, when do you think Unsung will be available for um, people to... Man, I hope sooner than later. I hope to have a season wrapped up ironically it was a year ago where i said it would be out around thanksgiving maybe when i was on my little farewell thing so i don't know if i really get to it maybe in a couple of months i can start releasing episodes here's what's happened to me and this is a you can cut this all out if you want you ever notice in gilbert show how many times you say we, we're going to cut this out but it stays in the show yes <laughs> but what i've learned in hosting all these webinars that i've done i've become more comfortable talking to people right when i when i first started interviewing people for the show it was very alien to me right that's something Frank at Santo Padre, he's so good at it, right? Mm, he's really mastered. Mm. He's got a way of, of getting through it and the notes and all that. And I was a little unsure and, and I don't like my own voice. But now I've been hosting webinars for 100 people at a pop two times a week since March for people on, on a number of topics and then hosting live guests that are turning into podcast episodes anyway. I feel like I've grown in this time, so maybe it's good that I've saved some of the better guests that now I feel more comfortable with my own voice and my own style of, of getting down doing it. So maybe it's for the better that it, it's taken this long to get it done. But I've got a few great episodes in the can. I need to edit them and tighten them up. So my goal is to have 10 or 12 done and start releasing them while I make the next batch. It's not going to be a new episode every Monday in perpetuity. I just don't have enough hours in a day. But the show, it's going to have an arc. You'll, episode one, you're going to love. I don't think we actually explained at the beginning of the show what Unsung is supposed to be about. So just we're starting to run out of time. But just very quickly, what's the premise behind Unsung? So Unsung, it's, it's Unsung the people you don't know you know, right? So whereas Gilbert's show, it's celebrity-driven or people that are well-known writers or directors and, and all that, the people you're going to hear from on my show are guys like Frank Sims, who's episode one. And it's working with guys like Frank over the years that made me want to do the show because you don't know that name. But in America, if you remember the Kool-Aid commercials, he was the Kool-Aid guy for 20 years. Oh, yeah. You know, that that drink we have here. He's also one of the regular singers on Saturday Night Live. If you ever if you know the uh, Saturday TV fun house, like as an example of one of the jingles he does and countless other jingles. But as you will hear in the first episode, 
if you listen to the song Let's Dance by David Bowie, mm. that whole acapella intro is Frank Sims and his, his other backup singers. Oh, wow. And he not only sang on that whole album, but toured with them. Mm. So if you look at the Serious Moonlight tour photos, you see these guys in pin, pinstripe suits and straw hats flanking Bowie. That's Frank and his brother. Wow. But he goes back as far as singing Cats in the Cradle, that classic song. I don't mm. know if that was a bit internationally or not. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, Carly Simon. Here's another thing. Because every time I work with Frank, you learn another thing about him. And I didn't know until like 2015 when he popped in for a commercial session with me. And we were talking. He's like, oh, it came up that on Madonna's album, Material Girl, he sang all the backups on that whole album. But he is the guy going, living in a material. Or like, that's Frank. So he's oh, just wow. everywhere. And I just thought, boy, this would be a fun podcast. Just like, here's a guy you don't know, but he's everywhere. So the show is like that. Great musicians, film directors, voice actors, video editors, all the people that make the things you see on TV, hear on the radio, watching the movies, but you don't know their names, which is verbatim from the show open. <laughs> so uh, so look for that as soon as I have time to get it together, because between my day job and my consulting, that my podcast took a back seat. And mm. I feel bad about it, but I'll get it going again. I just well, have to edit it. You have to put food on the table, I guess. Yeah, food comes first. I mean, look, if I don't eat for seven months straight, I might go hungry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, I'll definitely be posting that so uh, both the listeners will find out about the show when it is available. Once again, huge thanks to you. Before we wrap up, I'll just let the listeners know what is going on next month. So next month, it'll be December 2020. Uh, I can't believe we've gotten to the end of this shit year. Hopefully things are going to turn around a little bit for 2021. Now, normally what I do in December is I ask music journalists for the favorite first time listens of the year. So it could have been released in that year that we've been recording the show, or it could be something that they discovered from 30 years ago, but just something to recommend for your ear holes. Now I've decided to do it differently this year. I'm going to do just an another regular episode. It doesn't sound great when I say it like that, but we're we're not going to be doing an end of year favorite. Maybe I'll bring it back for 2021. But this year, one of the wonderful things that came out, and there were a handful of them, was a local record label owner and huge, huge music fan, Scott Thurling. He of the Pop Boomerang record label started up a Facebook page with another couple of people to pay tribute to Australian independent music of the 90s, which was really, really huge here and had a lot of fans. So he just sort of thought this might be a nice Facebook group to start off and thought, oh, yeah, we might get a few hundred people. And inside a month, they had like about 10,000 people join. And that wasn't just, wow. not just the music fans who were listening, but a lot of musicians were joining <laughs> up as well to share their memories and paraphernalia. And I think the group's now like at 15,000 members or something like that. So I don't know if it was Scott who came up with the idea or one of the other organizers of the group, but this group is called Sound As Ever. And what they did was they went around to any of the musicians who were in the Facebook page and said, look, do you have any songs that you have in a shoebox somewhere? Something that you really like, but it could never find a place on an album that you released in the 90s and we'll put out a collection and just see who buys it or how we can put this out. And not only did they do that, they did it twice. There are two 80-minute CDs virtually of songs from Australian independent acts, like some who I knew and loved well, and some who I didn't know who they were, but most of these tracks just absolutely blew me away. Hmm. And wonderful thing is that Scott says that he's had so many contributions that these two albums are, as Frank Santopadre would say, the tip of the iceberg. He's just going <laughs> to keep 
ongoing with these. And like I bought the two CDs as soon as they came out and they're absolutely magnificent. So we're going to be talking next month with Scott Thurling and my very good friend, Dave Blom, who is a big 90s Australian music aficionado. I mean, he's a music aficionado in all regards and he's hosted a couple of episodes of Love That Album along the way, but he'll be coming back and we'll all just sort of be talking about our perspectives of Australian independent music through that decade and some of the tracks in particular on those two compilations. I urge you to uh, go search that out. Pop Boomerang is Scott's label and there's still tons of great albums on his own label, but there you should find on uh, the band campsite the Sound As Ever compilations volume one and two and with more to come. But we'll speak more about that with Scott next month. So I guess I'll just leave it at that and just say, please, people, be nice to each other, look after each other, give each other a hug if that's not going to be offensive to them. We'll speak to you all next month. And once again, thank you very much, Frank. All the best. You're very welcome. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.